on December 22, 1944. At about 11.30 in the morning, a group of four German soldiers waving two white flags approached the American lines using the Arlon Road south of Bastogne. The group consisted of two officers and two enlisted men. They approached the 2nd Battalion command post of the 127th Regimental Headquarters. And up the chain of command went their request, a message to meet with the American commander. At division headquarters, half asleep, Brigadier General McAuliffe was awakened and given the German commander's message suggesting forcefully that the United States forces surrender. It read this way. To the USA commander of the encircled town of Bastogne, the fortune of war is changing. This time the USA forces in and near Bastogne have been encircled by strong German armored units. More German armored units have crossed the river and are coming. There is only one possibility to save the encircled USA troops from total annihilation. That is honorable surrender of the encircled town. The assessment of the German commander was largely true. Germans had swallowed up the country around the city in their offensive that we know now as the Battle of the Bulge, and the 101st Airborne was surrounded, outnumbered five to one by some estimates. Cold, tired, low on ammunition. Their situation looked desperate. It was desperate. General McAuliffe, the American commander's response was brief. He called the typist to himself, and he said, write this, December 27, 1944, to the German commander, nuts, the American commander. The Germans received the response and were a bit confused by the slang. But the American who escorted them back to their line clarified, it means go to hell. Resolute, the Americans persisted, desperate, but for confident, but confident in their deliverance. This Wednesday, we mark the 77th anniversary of that very event, that siege. And in addition to demonstrating the best of American character of the last century, the story illustrates the feeling of Israel given in Micah chapter 5. Look with me at the Old Testament lesson. It's in your bulletin and the order of service, but of course it's also in your Bibles, Micah chapter 5, starting with verse 2, where we read, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, who is coming forth is from of old, from the ancient of days. When we look at that, we have to look at the verse just prior to it, which the lectionary omits. In Micah chapter 5, verse 1, we read of the siege, of the siege that's going on at this point, 
what's happened is King Shenanabed, I can never pronounce his name, king of Syria, has laid, lays, laid siege to Jerusalem. And the prophet is telling Jerusalem to gird her loins and prepare it for the siege. It reads this way. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. The siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And then we get to verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Do you see what's going on here? Is that there is a siege laid against God's people. And as we come here to the end of Advent, we are to think in expectancy of Jesus' coming as those besieged here in Jerusalem. We're lost. We're desperate. And yet we're to have that steely resolve to resist the devil, awaiting the deliverance that surely will come from God. True expectancy for the Messiah is much more desperate and our resolve in God much more necessary than most of us think. Today's readings describe both that resolve and that joyful reaction to the deliverance that someone is going to break the devil and sin's siege against us. And we see in today's reading the reaction to the news of deliverance. We see the reaction of the prophet Micah for Israel. The reaction of St. Mary the Virgin, Elizabeth, and John the Baptist in utero in our Luke passage. The reaction of the church in the Hebrews passage. Each is a little bit different if you paid attention. And we spoke a great deal the last week about the Jewish misinterpretation about what the Messiah would be like. Remember, there was this thought that he would free them from political oppression, that he would throw off the Romans and any other oppressors. And we know that Jesus came, however, to break mankind free of something much more important, of sin, of the devil, of his stronghold. Of course, all mankind benefits from Jesus' arrival, but we should not forget that Jesus did come first to bring salvation to Israel, God's people. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lowly exile here. We just sang that, didn't we? It's what Micah is crying out about. It's what Micah is giving hope for. Mary also speaks of this expectation and this joyful reaction that deliverance is coming in the Gospel passage, Luke chapter 1. Look with me at verses 54 and 55 specifically. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He spoke as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Now we've just come out of a sermon series about God's promises to Abraham. Do you see how Mary sees this as much more than some political freedom? 
but rather sees this as for what it is, of God blessing His people and indeed all the peoples of the earth through the child in her womb. He has helped His servant Israel. It's clear that Mary, either through her study or divine wisdom, sees the reality of this. And this, of course, is the very same thing that the prophet Micah is promising hundreds of years before. In chapter 5, verse 3, where we read, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of God, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the name, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That peace that only Jesus can bring is the answer to this prophecy, is the deliverance from this siege. The king is Jesus. And who is the judge? Also Jesus. Commentator David Pryor writes this of the Micah passage. He says that Micah might have witnessed the king disgraced when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, had laid siege to Jerusalem. But just as is true in this prophecy, there's a double meaning. That the siege of Jerusalem is not just that earthly siege, but one of spiritual warfare too. You see, God's chosen people are stuck. By Micah's time, God has sent them judges, lawgivers, kings, prophets, priests, the law itself. And even with all this aid, they are wicked and lost. And the adversary, the devil, looks like he's about to win. The devil's laid, laid siege against them, both with physical nations at this point in Micah in history, but also on the rest of the world with his initiative of death and sin and condemnation. This is the winter that so many Christmas carols speak about. If you've not watched it already, there's a great Lutheran satire video on YouTube that makes fun of Anglican Christmas carols. It talks about how you know, Lutheran carols are all full of deep and rich theology, but Anglican carols are all about snow and animals and whatnot. It's a funny, it's a funny YouTube video, but it misses the point that the coldness that we sing about in our English tradition, the snow upon snow, the low how a rose are blooming, all that is supposed to remind us of the imagery of the depth of the coldness of the world and the despair and the hopelessness of what we are like without Jesus' arrival. It's poetry. Apparently Lutherans don't get poetry. We'll leave that there. <laughs> but, friends, the news is good. For that which we've been waiting for so long is almost here. Israel was waiting desperately. As a daughter of Abraham, so is Mary, and so is Elizabeth, and as a son, so is John the Baptist. Indeed, whether they know it or not, all the world is about to change for the time has almost come.
Is it any wonder that St. Mary breaks into song the way she does in the Magnificat? She sees at least part of what's to come and exclaims, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, of course, she's talking about herself, but she's also talking about Israel. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he that is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Friends, again, it's hard for us to understand the desperation that led up to Jesus' birth. It's hard for us to understand the hundreds of years of oppression that Israel had gone through. Do you see the joy that she's expressing here? Verse 51, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. He's almost here. He's almost here. And Mary rejoices, as does Elizabeth and John. So here we are, only five days away from Christmas. Our commemoration of Jesus' arrival. Do you feel the tension do you feel the excitement? Do you have the desperate anticipation? One of the best things about Christmas is that as we get closer to it in children, we see that excitement and expectation that animates all of us, or should. Of course, thankfully, most children aren't desperate as they expect Christmas, although some may be. But we as Christians... And neither do we as Christians, for God has come to save us, and we understand what he saved us from. We sing hymns like, uh, we sing hymns in our post-Jesus' first arrival time, which, with lines such as, He came to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray, with, as we sing in God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. But it's also to our great shame and dishonor if we forget the cold of winter before Jesus saved Israel or each one of us as becoming part of the church. Some of us can remember that time. Some of us became believers as adults. Most of us probably didn't. But that cold, desperate siege of reality is the same before Christ for all. It's even more shameful if we forget the depths of that cold hopelessness and despair that is the reality for so many around us who have yet to know Jesus. God's appointed us, friends, to proclaim the good news, not some sentimental spiritual gift of Christmas, but the life-saving, siege-lifting good news that God has come among us and can save anyone and everyone who will turn from his wickedness and live, as the prayer book says. Seventy-seven years ago, on December 26th, the lead elements of General Patton's army reached Bastogne, 
lifting the siege. Can you imagine the welcome that they received? Far more importantly, on December 25th, some 2,000 years ago, relief arrived for Israel in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, lifting the siege of the devil. The only one who could beat the devil was Jesus. The only one who could deliver his people was Jesus, the Son of God. The only one that can free us from the certainty of annihilation, actually technically of death spiritually and damnation, is Jesus Christ. That's good news. We carry upon us the good news that God has lifted the siege. That's what Christmas is all about. As we come to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, don't neglect the true meaning of Christmas. Be grateful for it. And be anxious to share it with those who so desperately do need it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.